You're listening to the Greater Long Beach Podcast, where our focus is helping people to connect to God, change, and thrive in life. My name is Luke Donatello. I am from Bakersfield. I think uh, I was here a couple years ago. Last time I was here, Soma was still here. If, you, if you're visiting for the first time, you don't know who Soma is, you can see him in theaters now in the movie Moana. Thank you for laughing at that. That was a dumb joke. But I want you to like me, right? I'm trying to find common ground. What I should tell you that will make everybody instantly love me is that my mom is a member here. If you know my mom, Laura, then you're going to like me, I think. Uh, the other thing I could tell you about myself is that uh, I substitute teach on the side for a little extra income. Who said yay? You, you feel my pain? So what I'm going to ask is everybody stay in your assigned seats, don't throw anything, and we'll have a great day. Uh, the other thing I'll say about myself before I kind of get into the lesson a little bit is that uh, I would say that Reuben is beating me with four kids. I would say that be- because I only have three right now, but my wife is pregnant with our fourth. So if Reuben listens to this on audio, the gauntlet has been thrown down. You need to have a fifth one, Reuben. So speaking, speaking of Reuben and the DeAndas, I listened to Reality Check last week. That was the lesson last Sunday. And uh, I expected to, you know, hear a good lesson, be entertained. I didn't expect to be convicted. Uh, you guys, I just want you to know how lucky and blessed you are to have the DeAndas. I have known them for a decade. And they're a rare... Uh, commodity. They're a rare couple. You are very, very blessed to have them. So the theme that you guys have been working through is unchained. And last week was reality check. It's kind of getting your mind in the right place of saying, you know, here's where I am. Here's where the chains are. This week, we're going to talk about being unchained from worry. Unchained from worry. In Long Beach, you don't have any worries. Right? I know it's a little overcast today, but if you're feeling sad on a normal day in Long Beach, you can just go to the beach. Right? You have oceans here. This isn't Seattle. It doesn't rain all the time. You, you, you can, right? No, you guys have worries. You guys have struggles. You know how I know you have struggles? Because you care. Because you care about things. You can't say that you don't have a care in the world. Because you care about things, right? Think about one thing that you care about. It could be a person or it could be something. And just take a minute. Just look to the person next to you. Tell them what your thing or person is that you care about. Put a name to it. You are a caring people, a loving people. I know this. From the moment I came here today, uh, I was greeted. I was warmly welcomed. I can tell you care by the amount of work that gets put into making this look good. You guys care about stuff. The funny thing about it is when you care about things, they cause you stress. They cause you worries, right? So if you were really sweet and you said to the person next to you, you're what I care about, well, you're basically saying you stress me out. 
right? Is there some truth to that? The things we care deepest about are also the things that cause us stress and worry. Me, I care about my family very deeply, and they stress me out. I have a five-year-old son, Joel, who was telling me when I asked him to look both ways when he's crossing the street that he doesn't need to because God will protect him. I don't, I don't even know what to say to that. Like, is that faith or is that pride? I think, I think my wife's answer to him was, God doesn't save you from stupid. You know, God's going to save you, but use your head. So the things we care about also cause us worry. The more we care about something, the more we worry about it. And oftentimes, we have to pick between one or the other. We're either going to care and be really stressed out, or we're going to numb our hearts and numb our minds, stop caring, and then maybe have some kind of peace. What if you could have both? What if you could care deeply about people and things, and at the same time be at peace? I'd go to a seminar for that. If if there was a conference for that, I'd go to that. Luckily, you don't have to pay anything. You don't have to travel far. You just get to spend 30 minutes this morning studying God's Word. And you're going to learn a little bit about how to have both care and peace. So turn with me over to Philippians chapter 4. We are going to zero in on a few verses here that are jam-packed with meaning. In Philippians 4, verse 4 through 7, We read, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This scripture is dense with information. It's the fruitcake of scriptures, right? And so we're going to spend this morning just kind of unpacking it verse by verse to understand what it's teaching us. Let's start at the beginning, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. This is an awesome command. I mean, who wouldn't love to be commanded that? Rejoice. It's the New York of command. So nice they named it twice. Rejoice. Rejoice. It needs to be said two times. What it means is that you should be joyful, that you should be cheerful, that you should think positively. It means that you should act like you're living unchanged. That's what it means to rejoice. It means to focus on the good. Focus on whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is excellent and praiseworthy. And Paul actually says that a few verses after this. If you're reading in a paper Bible, you can see that in verse 8. Science is constantly confirming what the Bible has taught for generations. That if you focus on what's good, they call it positive mental attitude, or PMA. 
that there are actual physical benefits, that there are psychological benefits, if you'll just rejoice. So Paul says it twice. Rejoice, and again I'll tell you, rejoice. It's got to be a habit, something you do always, constantly, whether you're in affliction or in abundance. You rejoice whether Trump won the election or Hillary. I'm talking to all people here. Maybe your candidate won, rejoice. Maybe your candidate didn't win, rejoice. If the tables had been turned, I'd say the same thing. Rejoice. And I'm not just saying that as some, you know, candy-coated gloss over things. Like, you just need to put on a happy face. You know, you just need to have a, a fake smile with bleached teeth and act like everything's fine. Fine is an acronym for feelings inside not expressed. You ever heard that? That's the cleaned up version of it. There's another way of saying it. Feelings inside not expressed. This is not a command to just act like everything's fine. It's not a command to come to church on Sunday morning and somebody asks how you're doing. Everything's great. I have to smile because God said rejoice two times. You don't fake it to make it. What this says, what Paul is teaching us is rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Not rejoicing on the surface. Not rejoicing superficially, but in God. This means saying in your heart, the Lord works out all things for the good of those who love him. All things are going to work out. It's going to be okay. Because God loves me and I love him. That's what it means to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoicing in the Lord is saying God so loved the world that he sent his only son. That's what it means to rejoice in the Lord. No matter what's going on, God loves me. What does this look like, though? If you could get a picture of it, Paul says it would look like consistent gentleness. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. Consistent gentleness. Let's talk about gentleness for a second. Is anybody reading out of a translation other than the NIV? You'll find a lot of different words translated here. Some say patience. Let your patience be evident to all. Some will say forbearance, which is a you know, fancy old-timey way of saying patience. Some say kindness. But with all those words, you kind of start to get a picture of what it means to be a joyful person in the Lord. A patient person, not quick to anger, even-tempered, kind, gentle. This is the picture of rejoicing. And it needs to be consistent towards all. We have a tendency sometimes to act a certain way at home and a different way in public. Where one moment we could be yelling at our kids and then there's a knock on the door and it's one of our friends and they come in and all of a sudden we're all smiles and everything's great in my house. And if we have time to prepare, it's even you know better. We clean up and everything's swept and all the toys are put away under the beds. But Paul is saying, don't just let your gentleness be evident when people come over. Let it be evident to all, all the time. One of the uh, most beloved characters in American literature is Atticus Finch, made famous 
by Gregory Peck in the uh, film version of To Kill a Mockingbird. Miss Maudie, in the story, is talking to Atticus's daughter. And she gives a reason why everybody loved Atticus Finch so much. The reason, she said, is because he is the same person in his private home as he is on the public street. He's, his gentleness is evident to all. So if you're trying to get a mental picture, what does it look like to rejoice in the Lord? Think of Atticus Finch. Think of somebody like that who's patient always, who's gentle always. It seems here, I could be wrong, that Paul has evangelism in mind. Notice the passage again. Let your gentleness be evident to all. I have to think that he's thinking of outsiders, people who aren't Christians here. It is an amazing testimony to those who don't believe in Jesus Christ when they see his followers rejoicing. And not just when times are good, but in all situations. The opposite is also true. We can do damage to the word of Christ when we don't live like this. And we claim to have peace in the Lord, but we don't live like it. So it seems that Paul here has evangelism in mind, but he certainly gives us a little challenge here and some encouragement when he says the Lord is near. It's kind of dual purpose. When you're feeling low and you're feeling alone, the Lord is near. Rejoice. Be gentle always. God is near you. But it's also a challenge. People are watching. The Lord is near. Don't forget that even if you're at home and none of your friends are watching you or none of your neighbors see you, God is still seeing how you act. Remember the Lord is near. The next thing he tells us to do is to overcome all anxiety. So he says, the Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything. When you hear the Lord is near, your heart may start to beat a little bit, like, oh, no. He's saying, it's okay. Don't be anxious about anything. In every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. This is a higher calling. Can I get an amen on that? Don't be anxious about anything. When my kids are sick, when I can't pay the bill on my car, how am I supposed to not be anxious? Well, it's probably not going to happen overnight. This is a higher calling. It's not an overnight fix. You're not just going to wake up tomorrow and be anxiety-free. But I will say that life-changing decisions can be made in an instant. In an instant, you can make a decision that, okay, this is the standard. And I'm not going to have any excuses for my fears, my complaints, my cynicism, my worries. I understand the call is to not be anxious about anything. And I'm going to set my mind and my heart at achieving that goal. You can make that decision today. Of course, it does help to have some tools. To be asked to do something incredibly difficult with no help is just mean. But Paul's not mean. He gives us some help here. He talks about prayer, petition, and thanksgiving. And this is neat. This is a lot deeper than just saying, pray about it, bro. Anybody ever had somebody say that when you're anxious? Hey, sis, just pray about it. And you're like, 
Yeah, thanks. I haven't thought about that. How did that escape my notice? But Paul doesn't just say pray about it. He does something really amazing here. He says prayer and petition. And what he's doing is he's differentiating between a general kind of prayer and a specific kind of asking prayer. And so he's giving us almost like a a little bullet point of how to run through your prayers to get the most out of them. I'm just going to be corny here, and I'm going to call it a CAT scan. Connect first, ask second, and give thanks throughout. So if your prayers feel weak and listless, give your prayer life a CAT scan. Ask yourself, am I connecting first? When Paul says prayer, before he says petition, he's speaking of that general kind of connection with God. This is things like giving God praise. It's saying, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. There's no asking in that. So often, we are so anxious, we just rush right into the asking. We don't spend time praising God for who he is. And so our minds are all agitated about what we need and what we want. We never take time to realize God has already done so much. So connect first. Spend some time praising God for who he is and what he's done. The second thing is the petition. That's the asking. And Paul is saying, ask him, petition God, go after him faithfully. He cares about everything you could ask him for, the small things and the big. He cares about your daily bread, and he wants to move mountains for you. There's nothing too big or too small that you can't go to God with it. So connect first, ask second, and give thanks throughout. Throughout all of it. God, I'm thankful for what I have. I'm asking for more. I'll be thankful when I get that. But no matter what, throughout all of it, I'm going to count my blessings. I'm going to keep in mind I am blessed. This is a very powerful way to pray. Are you with me still? Awesome. This is like godliness 101. This is like basics, right? Thanksgiving especially. I think we just had a holiday about that, didn't we? Yeah. We had a national holiday dedicated to Thanksgiving. What happens the day after? We freak out about Christmas. Black Friday, the Christmas lights go up. It's like we have national amnesia. For a moment, we all stopped and just said, let's be grateful. And then it's right back into the routine. Thankfulness is godliness 101. It's basic. You show me a godly person, I'll show you a thankful person. You show me somebody who's stressed out and and unspiritual, and and not doing well, and and constantly afflicted, I'll show you somebody who's not in touch with gratitude. These are basic, basic principles, but powerful principles. What happens if you can get a handle on this? If you start giving yourself that CAT scan, you start running through your prayers, scanning it, saying, okay, am am I hitting these three things, connecting, asking, and thinking? Well, then Paul says that you will have the peace of God guarding you. You will have that balance we talked about of caring deeply about things, but also being at peace about them. Paul says this this peace of God, it, it, it transcends all understanding, which is a a mouthful. Think about that for a second. Transcends all understanding. I used to think that that meant it was just inscrutable. You're like, indecipherable, unimaginable. God's peace 
is so far beyond what we can even imagine. And that's certainly a valid way of looking at it. But it's not really comforting when, you, when you're trying to visualize what God's peace looks like. You're just kind of, oh, I guess it's just going to be this amazing, you know, lightning bolt from heaven's going to zap me, and I'll just be like zen, and everything will be fine. So it's not really helpful in that way. But instead, what, what this is actually teaching, if we're going to get real, you know, specific, it's teaching that God's wisdom, his peace that he gives, is beyond the wisdom of man. And so there's a lot of peace peddlers selling their peace programs to you and self-help books and seminars and conferences and yoga classes and all these things meant to give you peace in body, mind, and soul. Some of it's good, and you can get some small amount of peace through it. But the peace that God gives transcends the understanding of man. It's so far above and so much greater than what these peace peddlers are selling you. That's what Paul is trying to tell you. And I'm sure it was an industry even then. Even then, I'm sure there were people telling you, if you worship Zeus, if you worship Athena, if you, you know, eat this food sacrifice to this idol, it's going to give you peace. You're going to be a happy person and your family will be blessed. Paul's saying that stuff, garbage. It's useless. Apart from God, none of that peace lasts. It's like Thanksgiving. You eat that meal, that tryptophan is in your belly, and you get that glow and that peace. But the moment Black Friday comes, it's gone. That's what Paul's saying. Look, the peace that you can get in the world lasts for a minute. But the peace that you get from God transcends that understanding, and it guards your heart and mind. God's peace is like a sentry. God's peace is like an armed guard standing outside your door, making sure that you are always safe and secure. You can't buy that kind of protection. The President of the United States has secret service surrounding him at all times. Security detail. Every time he goes into a building, they have to inspect it. They are with him non-stop. And Paul is saying, God's peace is better than that. Because while those secret service individuals can protect your body, only God can protect your heart and your mind. You can't buy that kind of peace. And so that's what Paul says. The peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And we've now come to the most important part of this passage. We've unpacked a lot of it. We've talked about rejoicing and what that looks like, that gentleness that's always evident to everybody. We've talked a little bit about how we get to that place by prayer, petition, and thanksgiving, doing a capstone. We talked about what's going to happen if we follow these principles, that we'll have this peace. But the most important part of this are those last three words, in Christ Jesus. And we need to talk about that for a minute. It's in Christ Jesus that God's peace guards you and me. Outside of Christ, we do not have this peace. And so we need to think about what Christ did to bring us peace. 
It was Christ Jesus who came down to earth from heaven, a place where there is infinite peace and no worry. And he voluntarily came down to earth and took up your worries and concerns upon himself. The greatest fear, the greatest worries, I'm not talking about your bills or about how you're starting to get wrinkles, whether or not your body is beach ready when summer comes around. I'm not talking about those worries. The worry of guilt is what I'm talking about. The worry of sin, saying if people really knew me, not just what I've done, but even what I think about doing sometimes, they wouldn't love me. Jesus took upon your guilt and your worry about what sin does to you and how nobody's going to love you, and he took that to the cross. The other great worry that we have, apart from guilt and sin, is death itself. No matter how rich you are, no matter how wise you are, we're each and every one of us going to have to face death someday. It's the final separation, the most painful break. And Jesus said, I'm going to take that worry to the cross also. And so all of our worry and all of our anxiety, Jesus said, I want to take those things upon myself so that you can have peace. And because of his faith in God and the power of God, Jesus Christ was raised up to life again. Now, his peace transcends all understanding. He is enthroned in heaven. And he's there to guard you and me so that we can have peace in God. This is amazing grace. Do you really understand it, though? I, I'll be honest with you, I don't. I don't. I don't get as excited about it as I should. I get a little bored with it sometimes. I've heard it so many times. I get numb to it. Jesus Christ died. I mean, we can probably, all of us, recite John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever shall believe in him shall have everlasting life. Ta-da! But does it mean something to you? You know, it's like music. There's been research done that if you hear the same song seven times, you tune out the lyrics. You can recite the lyrics, even. And we do it in worship sometimes. We'll sing a song, and we're still looking around at people who are checking our phone, and our lips are still moving. We've heard it so many times, and we can do that with the gospel, where it just becomes routine. It doesn't mean anything anymore. But just like with a song, we can get back to its meaning again. And this is what researchers have found with music, that if you will just change the key of a song, or you'll go from electric to acoustic, or acoustic to electric. But you put some change into it, all of a sudden the brain wakes up again, starts listening to those lyrics, and they have new meaning, sung in a different way. Same lyrics, sung in a different way. Every single Sunday, that's what we're hearing. The gospel in a different key. Same great meaning, but hopefully told in a fresh way to keep our hearts excited about it. One of the ways I want to help you get excited about it as we're preparing for communion is I want you to think about something you're anxious about. 
It could be the thing that you mentioned earlier when you pick something you care about. Like I said, the two often go hand in hand. But in your own mind or on the notes on your page that you're keeping notes, put a name to the thing that stresses you out. When you have it, say amen. Everybody's got something. I know it's Long Beach, but you still have worries here. Now I want you to remember that if you're in Christ, that thing you're worried about has already been taken care of. The victory is already won. What can they do to you? Kill you? Then you're just perfected in heaven. Debt collectors can't find you in heaven. They can find you at home. I don't know how they do it. They have ways. But they'll never find you in heaven. Now, I don't want to get myself in trouble with Reuben. I know you guys have been doing Financial Peace University. Pay your bills, right? Don't try and get out of debt by just waiting until you die and go to heaven. Be responsible people. Live debt-free, but in the meantime, take a breath. I mean, just physically do it. It, it. it helps. Oxygen calms you down. You have nothing really to worry about. Your sin has been washed away. God knows you, every hair on your head. And he loves you anyways. And in the end, if you die, you're going to heaven. If you're not in Christ, and I want to talk to anybody here who's not a Christian, anybody here who's not sure where they stand in their faith or they're on the fence, step one for you has to be getting into Christ. I'm not a real big fan of self-help lessons. I think that this kind of lesson I was talking about, CAT scanning your prayers, positive mental attitude, a lot of people will take that and go, great, I don't even need Christ. I mean, that's going to make my life better. And it will to some degree. But I want everybody to know that the peace that truly transcends all understanding is found in Christ Jesus. So if you're not in Christ, step one is getting into him. Ask somebody here to study the Bible with you. Faith comes from hearing the word of God. So ask somebody to share with you what it means to be in Christ. And as we start to close out here and we start to think a little bit about communion, I want to take a minute to strip away all the superficial stuff and get down to what's real. Someday we're going to have to stand before the judgment seat of God. And it won't matter about your beach body, and it won't matter about your bills. All that will matter is whether or not you're in Christ. And we never know when that day is going to come. In just the last month, on my street in Bakersfield, a toddler got out of the back door in the house, walked outside to where the parents had a, a pool in the backyard, and fell in. I was spared from having to hear the mom crying, but my next-door neighbor heard it. He actually thought it was my wife. He couldn't place where the sound was coming from. He saw the ambulance come rushing up the street. Sure enough, they pulled a 
a body on it. The parents had just moved in that same summer, summer of 2016. They knew it was a danger. They had every intention to put a gate up, but you know how things are. They put it off until tomorrow. Down the street from me, one of the kids who goes to the high school that I sub out most often, Highland High, 19-year-old kid, has cancer. Healthy, young man, teaches swimming at Bakersfield Community College. And his body is riddled with cancer. We think that we're going to have this long life and that we can postpone the big decision of following Jesus. But you never know. For the infant, I think we all collectively agree. In our churches, we agree that they're innocent, they go straight to heaven. No problems there. But I don't see any infants in here. We're all grown-ups. You can make a decision that can change your life forever today by starting right now to study the Bible and get in Christ. So that's kind of a heavy note to end on. But we're going to take communion. Communion is not about what you need to do. It's about what's been done for you already. When we break the bread, we drink the cup, we are remembering that Jesus took our worries upon him and washed them away. If you're in Christ, please join me in communion as we pray. Father, we are so very grateful for what you've done for us. And I want to pray quickly, too, for anybody who's not in Christ that they don't feel pushed out by this sermon, that they're not offended by this sermon, not by my words, not by Paul's words. Uh, I pray that anybody who's not in Christ wants to keep coming back, wants to keep hearing more so that they can make a great decision. But for those of us that are in Christ, God, we, we just, we're, we're excited to take this communion. Jesus' body is real food. His blood is real drink. Because it doesn't just nourish our physical body, it nourishes our souls. I pray that as we take it, we can take it in a way that's pleasing to you, God, and for your glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Greater Long Beach Podcast. For more information about our church, please visit greaterlongbeachchurch.com.